Hey everyone, welcome to Unpacking Perspectives. I'm Nicole Davison, your host, and I am so excited about today's episode. I am joined today by one of my childhood friends, Nick Ortiz. He is a New York City fireman, and I have been looking to have him come on to our show for months now because I just can't wait to unpack his entire career. So with that said, welcome, Nick. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I've heard every episode so far, so it's great to finally be able to talk to you on here. Uh, yeah, I'm a FDNY lieutenant. Started about 25 years ago. I work in a, uh, a part of the city called Glendale, Queens. It's uh, on the Brooklyn-Queens border. I've been there the last eight years when I was promoted. Before that, I did my first 17 years in the Bronx in uh, a part of the city called Soundview, which was actually where I was born. I was born, I moved when I was about six years old to where we grew up. I ended up going back there as a firefighter when I first got on. It's amazing. And you know, it's funny because obviously we had a window of time where we lost touch throughout our young adult lives. As everyone. Exactly. And the beauty of Facebook and social media and everything else brought us together. But knowing the career trajectory that you took, knowing where you came from when you moved out to Long Island, I was just so affected by knowing the career choice that you made as to where you ended up working in the Bronx as a fireman. That really resonated to me years later. And obviously you weren't even there anymore. So that's really cool. With my career trajectory, it was uh, it was very strange how I came into doing this type of work. It wasn't something that I anticipated doing, something that my father had pushed. My father was a, uh, a New York City detective, an NYPD detective for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And my father was a tremendous fan of the fire department. He loved the fire department with all of his heart. He loved it. He loved it more than a police department. And, and obviously someone that would do 40 years on a police department has a strong love for it. So he guided me towards the fire department. But that was not my my initial go-to of what I was thinking about doing. I remember that because I remember you went to art school. I did. I went to art school for four years. One of the things about art school that I learned right away was that I enjoyed the process of making and constructing art. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed art. I enjoyed making it. I enjoyed discussing it. I enjoyed looking at it. I did not enjoy the prospect of networking and the art world per se, and mm-hmm. trying to do what it took to become successful in that. Upon that realization, it wasn't anything that interested me. And uh, I had to decide what I wanted to do with my life. And what's interesting, we had a conversation a while back that, I did not even know that your father was in law enforcement growing up. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was actually a very highly, uh, very highly decorated detective. He was in an elite unit on the NYPD, the Joint Terrorist Task Force. He was actually one of the first, I believe, 15 NYPD members to be admitted to that unit. So he was there from the ground floor when they first started in uh, probably the early 80s. He, he was very um, involved with that unit all through probably like the last 25 years of his career. He did in that unit. So all through uh, the trade bomb in 93, up until, you know, after 9-11, he got out in 2008. It's amazing. And, you know, I think back to our lives in general. I mean, obviously, I went away to school when we graduated high school and I was in college during that first bombing. Yeah. You know, my dad was in the World Trade Center during that time. And again, I had no idea that your dad was involved in any of this. It's it is to me again, it kind of brings our lives full circle as you know, we're now in our late forties. Here we are doing this podcast and it is just, it's truly surreal to me. Yeah. Life is funny that way. It's unbelievable. And obviously I know you're going to be on for multiple episodes throughout our lives together, but 
I keep going back to if someone were to tell you when you were 18 years old that this is where you were going to be today, what would you have said to them? I, well, I definitely wouldn't have believed the fire department. If anything, I did want to give the art thing a go. I really did want to do that. But I kind of always thought I was going to end up being a cop because my father was you know, so involved in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have kind of an adopted uncle who is very well known in the fire department. But he didn't really talk about the fire department until I actually got on the fire department. And he was he was a big help for me when I was able to get on. Very close family friend. He was a close friend of my father's. So when I started the process to get on the fire department to go in, he was kind of my go-to. And then when I got on, he helped me get assigned to uh, the company that I got assigned to, which at the time was one of the probably top five busiest engine companies in New York City. So when I got on, we were going to some of the most fires of any company in the city. But again, he didn't speak to me about the fire department until I had already began the process of, of going on to the job. When you graduated college, what happened? Where were you then? And when did you decide to go into the fire department? Well, what ended up happening with me was I took the test in uh, 1992. And it's a little bit of a, a funny story was my father got the application for me to take the test. And I threw it away. I, I actually tossed it into the garbage because I, I had no interest in doing it. My father took it out of the garbage and sent it in. He mailed it in for me. And a, cu- a couple of months later, I got the admission card for the test. And my father said, uh, you're, you're obviously surprised to see that, right? And I said, uh, I just didn't say anything. And he goes, you should have been smarter about hiding it in the garbage, is what he told me. <laughs> and uh, the night before I took the written exam to get on the fire department, I actually was supposed to work. There's a club on Long Island called Siberia on Hempstead Turnpike. Yep. And a friend of mine were we were huge Mighty Mighty Boston fans. This is like 91, 92. Yeah. They were playing at Siberia in Levittown and he got us a job doing security for that show. And I'm walking out the door to go work that job. And my father, who my father never asked for anything. My father told. And my father looked at me and he was like, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to go work this job. I'm going to see this band. And he was like, for me, stay home, get a good night's sleep and take this test. And I was like, no, I, you know, I go out all the time. And he was like, you don't understand how important this is. And, and and my father, like I said, he never asked me for anything. And he said, for me, mm-hmm. do this. I stayed in that night. I got a good night's sleep and I went to take the test the next day, which I was getting paid to take because I was doing this another security job for my father who let me leave the job to go take the test while I was being paid. It was right, right out of high school. It was probably, uh, I'm going to say like September, October, after our senior year of high school. Yeah. So I was fresh from like SATs and tests like that. Yep. So I was probably at the height of my test taking ability, you know, like probably crush this test for that reason. And uh, I was able to score high enough that I was it, that I was called. But back then, if you didn't, if you scored anything lower than maybe a, ni- a 98, mm-hmm. you weren't going to get called. So I, I remember being excited that I found out I got a 99 and my uncle was like, I don't know if that's going to make it. And I was like, what are you talking about? A 99? He goes, you, get, you better get a hundred on the physical. Now, I was shocked. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you know how many people are going to have hundreds and 99s? He goes, you might not get called. So I did all right. I, I placed very well on the list. I wasn't that far back. I was I, I was probably in the first year they established the list. Okay. My list was held up several years because there was quite a few lawsuits on my list. So that actually held me up probably another two or three years. So I was going to drop out of college to start the fire department. So my father had asked me, he says, you know, I look like I was about to go in in uh, 95. Okay. The winter of 95. And that was my senior year. And he goes, oh, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to drop out. I said, you know, I'm not, you know, I can finish up school later down the road. I'm not going to turn down a job that's paying yeah. money. And uh, he says, I would, I don't want to pressure you, but that's what I wanted to hear. 
Mm-hmm. He goes, you know, I was hoping you would say that. And then uh, it just kept getting delayed, getting delayed, getting delayed. There was, uh, yep. so that held us up. Can you tell our listeners where you went to college and what your major was? Uh, my first two years, I went to college at FIT in Manhattan. And I was a fine arts major there. And their program there, it's actually a very good school for other majors. They have some of the highest job placement of a SUNY school. So it's actually a good school for other majors. Yeah. And then I went to SUNY Purchase. And I did my last two years there at SUNY Purchase. And I was a, a sculpture major. A large, I uh, was a large-scale metal sculpture major. Very hands-on. Yes. And, and that's what I enjoyed. That was part of the process I enjoyed. Because the facility up there was, I went from like a, like an afterthought fine arts program to a school that really took their fine arts program very seriously, especially sculpture. That was where I really got into sculpture because you couldn't really do sculpture at FIT. They didn't have a facility for it. Mm-hmm. Now I ended up in a school that basically has an, an airplane hanger in the back to work on sculpture. They had You could do large scale pieces there. Did you think about the career path in going through a program like that? I honestly did not. It was, uh, I was thinking about trying to get a, uh, an internship at like Isamu Gucci's museum in Astoria, the, the, the Suvaro Sculpture Garden in Long Island City. I was like, you know, maybe I can get a job there or just an internship, try to figure out what to do next or a job at Socrates. But I really didn't have a plan from that aspect. At, at that point, I had kind of given up on the, the idea that this was going to be some, something I was going to do for a career. I, I look back on it now. And I think I had come to that realization. I was maybe deluding myself a little bit longer, like maybe something will change kind of thing. Yeah. But at that point, I kind of realized like this, this wasn't going to happen. And again, everyone's different. Everyone goes through their own experiences and realizations as they go through the process. But what's really hitting me for your career trajectory, Nick, there was a point that you were almost fighting your dad. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a fireman. This isn't, this is where I want to be. What yeah, changed? I, you know, like what, like where did where did that change for you? Where you realized that this is the path that I want to go down. Honestly, the morning of the test when I went, I went I went to a school in Manhattan to take the test, and I was shocked at how many people were there. And I remember thinking to myself, I thought I was going to go to an empty building. There was going to be ten people in chairs. There was a thousand people at the school. I think in the the ninety two test, I think something like fifty thousand people took the took the test. Yeah. Initially, it was 10, and then they reopened the filing, and that was another reason for a uh, for a lawsuit, was that they had reopened the filing, and people were saying, it's not fair. I, I made it for the initial date, and you're extending it, and now my chances are diminished. But that was one of the lawsuits. When I was there that morning, and I saw how many people were there, I said, you know what? I don't know what's going on here, but I should probably do my best on this, and then if, if I don't want to do it, I can always turn it down. Yeah. You know what? I better take my time and do this good, and, and ironically enough, I don't, I don't know the rhyme or reason to it, but I was in a room full of people I went to high school with. So there was a lot of people that, you know, you would know if I rattled off their names, you would, you would definitely know who they were. And I was saying, you know what, I was out with this guy a couple of days ago and he never mentioned he was coming to take this test. Yeah. What I started doing after that was anytime I would pass a firehouse, I wouldn't knock on doors. I wasn't weird about it. But if I saw them outside, I would stop and tell them, hey, I'm on the list. Uh, you know, is there anything you could tell me? Is it, you know, and, and one thing I noticed, was anywhere I went, I would be, you know, doing work in the South Bronx. I would talk to the guys at uh, 83 and 29, which, you know, was a company, you know, I was detailed to quite a few times later as a firefighter. I worked there. I would be in Queens and I would go to firehouses in suburban areas of Queens. I would talk to these guys and everyone was extremely happy with the job. Yep. And I said, okay, wait a minute. There's no one here saying anything bad about this job. Yep. So I said, I don't know what's going on, but it's, it's got to be good that all these guys you know, these, you know, from the worst ghettos to the nicest parts of the city, 
yep. everyone, one thing that was common was everyone enjoyed that job. So I said, you know, I, I, I better find out about this. I better see what's going on. And then by the time it came up, I wanted it more than anything in the world. When I finally realized, you know, what the job was and how happy everyone was who did it. And, you know, I didn't meet a, I didn't meet a single person who didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, there, there's got to be something there. I better, you know, I better knuckle down and, and do this process because there's quite a few steps you have to go after taking the initial test. Can you share with our listeners what those steps are? Like, what did you have to do to get to the point that you are a New York City firefighter? Well, initially, you take your written exam first. That's the first thing you do. Then, if my memory serves correct, the next part was a physical exam, which I trained for that exam for probably close to a year. Because that's another part of the test that if you don't get 100 on it, it's not like you're automatically discounted, but they, they won't get far enough on the list to get to you. So you need to score 100 on the physical to have any type of chance of getting called. So I worked out for that test for, you know, it was funny because people at my college, they didn't know what I was doing, but they would see me doing all these crazy things. You know, I, I had a weight vest and I would just walk around for hours with a weight vest. I would carry two, uh, two 45 dumbbells in each hand and I would just climb stairs for an hour. I'd run constantly. I was constantly doing cardio. I was working out every day for this test. Because at that point, I was like, wait a minute, you know, I don't have a lot of things on my horizon. And this seems like a really, really good opportunity. Like, like this isn't settling. This is something that could really, really be something. Yeah. So at that point, I was getting very excited for it. Then after the physical, you do well enough on that. They call you for two psychological exams. I had a, like a group psychological exam that they just, you, you do a survey, you answer questions. It's, it's, it's similar to every other law enforcement uh, public service exam where they just ask you the same questions hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, had a private psychological, and that, that's how you know you get close. When they start calling you for these other examinations, you know that, because people are getting eliminated every step of the way. Uh, then I did a, you know, a couple of month background exam where they go through, you know, make sure you aren't arrested, things like that. They go through your, uh, your history. And uh, at that point, then they establish the list and then it's a waiting game. After that, you're waiting for them to get to your number to start the academy which at the time I did the academy, it was like two months. Years later, it was up to nine months. And then they reduced it back. Now, I, I believe it's about four months. Okay. So, you know, from as time goes on, they, they change the requirements. I think now more emphasis is placed on the, uh, the academic parts as opposed to the physical parts, where when I went through, there was a lot more on the physical as opposed to the academic. And then, you know, from there, you get assigned to your company after what they call proby school. Yep. So you, you go to proby school for uh, a couple of months and then you're a probationary firefighter. Now it's a calendar year after proby school. But when I was on, it was from the day you got sworn in. So a, a year after I got sworn in, I was assigned okay. to uh, to a company. I was a New York City firefighter. I was, I was no longer a probationary firefighter. Okay. So what year were you sworn in as a New York City firefighter? The first class of 1997. I was January of 1997. And it's amazing for anyone listening, just to think when you started to when you got sworn in, there is a huge commitment there. And it's it was something years. that- It was years. Yeah, years. And again, that changes, give or take the climate, obviously the same thing in law enforcement, but it's a huge commitment and it's a life. It's not just a career, it's your life. The first couple of years, salary is not, it's not very good, your first couple of years. And then but by the time you get to top pay, then you have a very good salary. It's very, we do okay. It's, it's a good salary. But those first couple of years are very strenuous. So like for me, I was very lucky. My, uh, you know, my father knew I was going to be making a lot of money. So 
he let me move back home and he was really cool about it. You know, my sister was super, super supportive. Uh, when I got into the academy, my sister let me stay at her apartment in Astoria, Queens. Yep. Now the academy is right next to there. So like I always had the support of my family. I always had people helping me. I was lucky from that aspect, but I was 23. Yeah. Now that I was in the academy with guys that were 30 years old that had children and houses. It was very difficult for them. We had guys in the academy. You're not, you're not supposed to work when you're on probation yeah. outside of the fire department. And there was guys that if they didn't work outside, they would have lost their homes. So yeah. we would get off Friday afternoon. There was guys that would go and they would work their union job. They would have a boss who would let them work off the books. They would work Friday night and then they do construction Saturday and Sunday yep. and then come back to probate school first thing in the morning on Monday. Now that I believe they are allowed to work extra departmental employment while on probation. But when I was on, they would fire you for that. So I actually worked with a guy that was fired and he had four kids. And they had found out that he was working a second job and he was fired for that. And he was able to get his job back about a year later. But that's how serious they were about it. I was in a very fortunate position in the fact that my bills were very small. Yeah. Uh, I had I had a lot of family support and a lot of family help. And then, you know, the salary catches up to, you know, to a livable amount. But at first it was real, it was real rough. Absolutely. Well, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, I think back to when we were growing up and, you know, obviously my dad, was a huge influence on my career trajectory in the beginning. And there, there was never a huge emphasis on the trades and on, you know, different career paths other than going to college. And yes, it's important to go to college at any level, but I think there are many young people that their dream is to be a fireman or their dream is to be a police officer, right? You know, like when you're little, when yeah. you're little kid, yeah. you know, but when you really think and you break that down, the career of a firefighter, and there are so many incredible blessings with that. And I just, I, I think it's amazing just to think about how you got to be at this point. It's almost like you were fighting it in the beginning. And yeah, I, I, it you know? is funny because I didn't, I had no ambition to do this. I wasn't the kid looking at fire trucks and, uh, and sitting there, you know, longingly dreaming about being on one. I really, I didn't. I really didn't even think about it. It wasn't anything I even thought about. It's funny how it worked out because by the time, and, and that was actually a funny thing was the guys I grew up with who really wanted to get on the job, they weren't able to get on. And I was always like, I, I have a couple of friends that we grew up with who were like, I can't believe that you're on that job. Like, you know, you never wanted to do it and I wanted to do it. And, you know, so you have to almost kind of be like, yeah, I'm really lucky to have this. This is yeah. not, you know, this is not a, 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 a given that, you know, I was lucky to do this. Like, I, you know, not that I'm lucky, but it, I am lucky to do it, but it's, yeah. it's not a given that I was, be, I would be able to do it. I was very fortunate the way things worked out. I mean, I, I did the legwork. I did what was asked of me because during the process, you'll see that that is a, a, an eliminate. It, it's a way of eliminating people on the list mm -hmm. who doesn't show up for the different things. They, they ask you to come. You'd be surprised how many people don't show up for their background examination, how many people don't show up for their psych, how many people don't train yeah. for the physical. They, and they don't, they don't get called yeah. for better or for worse. You know, if they wanted it, they would, they would do what was necessary to, to do it. And if not, they just, they go on, you know, the world's full of things to do. Exactly. You know, not, it's not for everyone. No. So, it's not. you know, you're saying the, the college argument when we were younger, it was, uh, life was, it was, was impossible without, I think mainly because our parents saw they suffered, they, they saw Yes. You know how hard some people work. They realized that uh, they were from a generation that a high school diploma was was an, an incredible thing to have. Yes. You know, if you, if you had a high school diploma, it's like, wow, he's got it made. A college, forget it. You know, you you were uh, the sky was the limit. Yeah. I yeah. think that the the world has changed though in that sense. You know, that dynamic is, is has definitely changed to a degree. 
Yeah. Where, you absolutely. know, maybe, maybe pushing people for college. Some people, yeah. If, if what you want to do, it's, is, is necessary to have a college education. Yeah. But I think they're, t- they're turning it into 13th grade, which yeah. is what they're doing. And it's an expensive lesson for people to go away and just, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're becoming debt slaves for careers that don't exist. Exactly. And, and it's interesting because I think about when we were growing up, Seaford, the fire department was volunteer. And yes. I remember just, it was a part of our life. I remember looking up to the fire, the fire department and just thinking like they not to speak cheesy, but it was like, they were like the heroes. And it, it's a big part of Long Island, you know, like the fire it department, is. the police department, that's like, just, it, it was in our blood, you know, like, it's just the, what, at least for the South shore of Long Island, that's just yeah. what it was. And it's just, it's amazing because I think that in some ways there are some young people that have that dream. And I think that there are some parents that might just be like, no, you don't want to do that. You want to do this. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? I can see parents not pushing their kids towards right? it either. Well, because they're afraid. You know, my, mom, and... my mom wasn't thrilled about it for the first couple of years. No, no. And I mean, and I see that too, being in higher ed for so many years. I mean, I've had students that you can just tell that they're meant to be a first responder. I mean, whether it's law enforcement or fire department, it's just, you could just see that that's the path they're meant to take. But it's almost like they're going to college as a backup plan. Yeah. And that's and an expensive backup plan. It's a very expensive. And, you know, again, I mean, obviously it's important to gain an education to obviously when you have a college degree, it does provide you a foundation for leadership in the future if you do go into some form of first response. But it's just amazing that, you know, some people, they just, they don't even ask for it, but they just end up there because it's where they're yeah. meant to be. And that's just, to me, when I, when I think back, when we reconnected years later and I learned of, you know, you being within the fire department, I was like, that is amazing. And I was so proud of you. And I just think of, you know, what it's been like for you over these decades. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, you know, I didn't appreciate that back then when we were younger, you know, I was off at college, just like, Hey, having a good time coming home on the week. And, you know, you were literally sacrificing your life to protect your community. And it is amazing. I'll say this though. It's a young man's job. You know, the older you yeah. get, it hurts more. Uh, the days are long. Oh my <laughs> it's gosh. Definitely, it's definitely well, a young man's job. Well, and you know, it's funny because I wouldn't say they're old because we're the same age, but I mean, you've had quite a career with it within the FDNY. So um, obviously you're a Lieutenant now. And when you think back to when you started to where you are now, was there ever a time that you thought like, what the hell did I get myself into? Or, you know, just in general. Well, similarly to how I never thought I'd be a fireman, I absolutely never thought I'd be a fire officer because uh, that was something I had no desire to do. I the, the, the position of senior man on the fire department is like a sacred position. So the, the backstep fireman who has the most time in the company is like, one of the most revered members of any company. It's basically, it's basically his company. Yeah. The senior man's company, because this is someone who's done decades in a house. Some, you know, some, some places close to 40 years, you'll have a senior man. Uh, some companies, you know, 20 years is, is pretty rock solid. If your senior guy has over 20 years, you, know, you have a rock solid senior guy. And that was what I always envisioned myself doing was I wanted to be the senior man of, I was in a ladder company, five, four. I dreamed of being the senior man of 54 truck. And strangely enough, similarly, how I was driven to take the fire department test, I was very close to my wife's uncle. 
And uh, he had actually been a lieutenant at one time in my company that I was in in the Bronx. So I'd never worked with him, but he was uh, he was an assigned lieutenant there in, I'm going to say the early 80s. So when I met my wife, he took me under his wing right away. He um, he treated me like I was a member of the family right from jump. And he was always pushing me to study. He was big on studying. And my wife's family are all, they're all on the fire department and they're all, they were all officers. So I was the lowest ranked person. I always joke around, I was the lowest ranked person in the family because they were all <laughs> captains and battalion chiefs. Yeah. And um, her uncle was always pushing me to study. And I would always tell him I wasn't going to do it. I'd be like, I'm going to be a senior man of 54 truck. And strangely enough, he was, he was in the hospital and his son had said to me, if you need to say anything to my father, you need to say it to him tonight. Because the doctor said, this is going to be his last, his last night. And if you, you have anything to say to my father, it's going to be the last time you talk to him. So I said, okay, you know, and I went in and he was, uh, he was in and out of consciousness. So he was, he was mixing up dates and people. So I came in, he recognized me, obviously, but he, he grabbed my hand and he was saying, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy. I don't know what I'm going to do with that guy. This guy's giving me a hard time in the fires. And it was two guys that had actually been dead for about 10 years. But, you know, he was, you know, he was in and out of, of consciousness and everything. Yeah. So I told him, I said, don't worry, I'm going to I'm going to talk to them. I'll take care of it. And he's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of this, you know, painkiller induced haze, in a moment of clarity. He would always say to me when I saw him, he goes, you studying? You studying? And I would always tell him, no. All of a sudden, in a moment of clarity, he said to me, he gripped my hand he, with a powerful, strong grip. He still had it. And he said, you studying, son? And I said, yeah. And I never intended to study. I, and I, I said, yeah. And he went, good, good. He patted my hand. He goes, you, you got to study. You got to study. Yeah. And that was the last time I saw him. And my wife actually said to me, you know, we were driving home from the hospital and, you know, she was broken up. She lived with her uncle. You know, her uncle lived in the house with her family. So she was very close to him. Yeah. You know, up until up until he was married, he he lived with them. So I laughed and I said, he asked me if I was studying. And that was the running joke was every time I saw him, he would be like, oh, you studying? You studying? I would tell him no. So she's like, what'd you tell him? I said, I told him yes. And she was like, well, you have to study now. I go, I'm not studying. What are you crazy? I said, I'm just telling him that the old man is on his deathbed. She goes, you promised him on his deathbed you were going to study. Oh, no. So now I was like, oh, man, I have to study now. And, uh, you know, I studied for probably close to a year. Yeah. And when I took the test, though, I took his picture. I had his picture on the on the, on the desk. I had his picture with me. And I, uh, I, you know, I did it for him. And yeah. I did it for my family also. But. You know, it was a big push, similar like how my father pushed me, something I didn't think I wanted to do. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, when I took that test, I didn't want to be promoted. Yeah. By the time I got promoted, I couldn't wait to get promoted. Yeah. Because uh, the company I was in, it was, it was a pretty intense place to work. It was very difficult firehouse to work. And it was a great company, one of the greatest companies in the city. And everybody says, you know, your house is always the best house in the city. But the company I was in was, you know, we were a very, very busy, busy house. And it was, you know, 17 years there. It was really, it was starting to get to me a little bit. It was, it was tough to work there. You know, you got beat up for 24 hours. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe to a, a clientele that wasn't necessarily always receptive to you. So, you know, you would go in there to help people, but you'd be getting diapers thrown at you from projects, batteries. Yep. We'd call it airmail. You know, we'd get things thrown at us. We'd be getting cursed out. We'd be, you know, you would go into the projects and it's, it's rough, you know, it, starts to weigh you down. And, and by the time I got promoted, I, I was ready just for a change. Yeah. I mean, I love the house. I love the guys I worked with. I miss them to this day. I, I was ready to see four different walls. I was ready to do yeah. something else. Now, when you were in that firehouse, because you obviously grew up in the Bronx when you were growing up. Uh, not really. I mean, I, I, yeah, yes and no. 
I mean, I was born there. When I was young, but I was born there. Um, But you know, I'm I'm a Long Island kid. You know, I know. I'm I'm a Long Island kid. I grew up in Seaford. That's what I tell people. Tell me where I grew up. Have any illusions about it? I'm very proud of being where I'm from. Of course. But do you kind of like? I I don't know. Maybe there's a part of me that just feels this way, just as a New Yorker in general. When you go into these places, you're like, I'm from here. Don't mess with me. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. The problem is we go everywhere else and we we feel the same way. Oh my gosh. We go everywhere else. I'm from New York. Don't mess with me. Yes. (laughs) Come on. I'm in Connecticut. I still feel that way, and I've been gone for so many (laughs) decades, but. There's just a pride. There is a pride within you. And yeah, it, just, absolutely. It, it stays with you. So that's a whole other <laughs> episode. We're going to come back on for an episode like that. <laughs> oh my gosh, Nick. I just feel like there's so many other things I want to talk about. I am just so mesmerized by your career. I'm I'm proud of you. I <laughs> I just, I feel like I have so Thank many. You. Well, the big thing for me right now, I mean, I just think of like what you've been through all these years. I mean, obviously I could probably ask you even more questions like during years ago, but the now. Right now, we've just we're still kind of going through COVID, but as a lieutenant, as a leader within your community, I, I, I guess this is something, you know, I just think of like for somebody that's considering going into the fire department, how has COVID changed your job? Like what's well, I don't know if you're aware of what's been going on with the with the vaccine mandate uh in New York City from the the mayor, but yeah. we were actually we're we're in the middle of a major staffing shortage. Yes. So uh, a lot of guys, they haven't been fired, but they've been placed on what they call leave without pay. Some of these guys might possibly be terminated. They were told that they were going to have about a year. And now they're being told that they have to like December. But starting from the beginning of COVID, my company, we were hit very hard with it. So for some strange reason, I don't know why, we all got it right away. So like when they started cracking down in March, when they started like, you know, kind of locking down, I had it immediately. I guess I was lucky. I didn't have a bad bout of it. Mm-hmm. I was. I felt bad for about eight hours. I felt, I felt run down. I wouldn't even have gotten it checked out if it wasn't for the fact that another guy that I was working with had the exact same symptoms I did. Mm-hmm. So we got, uh, at the time, they weren't even testing people for it because they were like, they were trying to avoid a panic. Yeah. But first responders had to get checked. So we had a couple of locations. They were like, to go back to work, we want you to to get checked because we, they didn't want us coming back and then infecting everyone else with COVID. So the woman wasn't even going to check me until I told her, you know, I said, look, I'm from the fire department. She goes, no, I have to check you because they want us to check you because you guys are going to be dealing with the public. And uh, so I didn't have it that bad, I, I, which I guess I'm very lucky because some people, you know, had it really bad. But I will say this, that first month, it was, I mean, it was a, it was a punch to the department. It was, it was something. There was definitely, you know, I mean, I know we all have different theories about different things, but there was definitely something going on. Yeah. You know, with, with the amount of medical runs that the engine was doing, um, mm-hmm. for the first time ever in my career, engine companies were allowed to pronounce people dead on scenes. And we're not allowed to do this. We're not doctors. Yeah. Even EMTs and paramedics, they technically aren't allowed to pronounce people dead. Yeah. But after 20 minutes of attempting CPR, they were like, you can, if, if it's obvious, because they needed to get those companies back in service. That was only for a short amount of time. Yeah. But I'd never seen anything like that. And um, I'm not, I'm not in a, uh, an engine company. So I'm in a, in a, what they call a truck company, a ladder company. Okay. So I wasn't going out personally. It was the engine and quarters and they were just getting, they were getting crushed. Yeah. It was definitely, but then it, it's almost like it kind of just, it, it, I'm not going to say it stopped because the numbers, I guess, are whatever they are, but we weren't getting sick again. We, we you know, so a lot of guys, I think, felt that they just weren't going to get the vaccine, you know? 
And, uh, you know, they felt that they had it. It wasn't that bad. Uh, they believe in natural immunity, whatever their different, you know, whatever people's different reasonings are. Yeah. And the mayor decided that he was going to push through a, a vaccine mandate. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't, you know, some people for various reasons, some people, uh, they're just anti-vaccine. Some yeah. people say, I'd like to wait until I kind of know <clears throat> what the, uh, what the outcome is going to be with this vaccine. I have another friend who his doctor actually recommended that he doesn't get it because he has a couple of underlying medical conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's different reasons, you know, I don't question someone's reason for getting it or not getting it. Yeah. You know, it's per, you know, I, I believe in people having personal responsibility, but they, yeah. they cut the staffing. You know, we lost a lot of guys. Yeah. So at one point we were down, I believe about 40%, uh, in spite of what the mayor says that the companies were closed, yeah. no matter what they tell you, no matter what the news says, yeah. they, they play a semantic game sometimes where like, if you're a double house, they'll close one of the companies and then they're like, no, the firehouse isn't closed. Cause technically the firehouse is never closed. Yeah. If the engine and the truck are gone, the firehouse is still open. Really? Yeah. Yep. Like there's times that, you know, the rigs break down. We're still in there. If someone ran up and was like, you know, my arm is bleeding. We wouldn't leave him in the street. We would help him. Exactly. So it's, so they play a semantic game, but those companies were not available for fire, fire duty or medical runs. Well, and, and that's, what's hard, right? You are in a role of public service. You are literally risking your life every day to protect your community and putting individuals in this position to make these choices are really unfortunate because I'm I'm with you. I think everyone should have their own opportunity to make a choice for themselves. Well, in a way, I'm almost glad that the younger firefighters on the job have seen this because I was, uh, I had about five years on when September 11th happened. And I also saw what happened post September 11th, there was like a, you know, people were very kind. They were very, you know, very kind to firefighters and, and police yeah. and everything. And there was a, a real movement of people showing us kindness and showing us respect. But also I needed the younger guys to see after mm-hmm. the guys who came on right after September 11th. This, this is not the way it is. Yeah. We don't throw around hero. It's always nice when someone says something nice. It's always nice when people say you guys are heroes. That that's mm-hmm. it, it, me, it, it, it is nice. Yeah. It means a lot. But you also don't want to hype yourself up and start kind of believing your own. You want to be your own hype man. And after that, it was good for those guys to kind of see how the public will turn on you with the manipulation of the city. So I've seen the city turn the public against us several times. One was after September 11th when they closed. uh, They were trying to close 10 fire companies. They closed six. They spun that around against us. And then all of a sudden, the public was like, wow, you guys are like, you you guys are messed up. You're not good guys. They tried to drive us against the police in like the early 2000s. They were trying to create yeah. tension between us and the law enforcement community in the city. Then um, w- when the law enforcement community was so under attack in the last few years, the fire department, we've always had a tight bond with them. We really just, it really strengthened our bond with law enforcement. Yeah. That brought us back together in a powerful way. But, you know, a couple of months ago, these nurses and doctors and EMTs and paramedics, now, that was their show. Like the fire department, we did our part and the police, we did our part. I really feel to defer to the to the paramedics, the EMS workers, you know, the engine companies, they did their part, you know. But like I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a truck company fireman. We weren't on the front lines to the degree that the medical aspect of it was yeah. and how fast the city turned its back on them. Mm-hmm. So I'm almost kind of glad for the, the younger guys to see that and see, look at how fast they turned on these nurses. Look at how fast they turned on these doctors. They wanted your, your parade doesn't mean anything, Mm -hmm. you know, your parade is just, that's all it is. It's just a show. 
that that doesn't mean anything. It's whether or not they're going to take care of you. And I think for the, a lot of guys in their career, I, I've seen this a few times. Yeah. They're seeing it now for the first time. They said, they will, they'll starve your family. They don't like something you're doing. They'll take yeah. your job from you. So it's kind of good for guys to see. Like I always say, I love the job. Mm-hmm. I don't love the FDNY in that sense. Like my allegiance is to the job, to my coworkers, to the, to the men and women on my job. Yeah. That's my allegiance to them, to, to them, to the people of the city that we fight for and protect. Absolutely. But as far as the government of the job goes, you know, I'm not a fan. I'm, yeah. I'm not a fan of the bureaucracy. I've never worked off. I, I, I only when I've been injured, have I worked offline. I try to always work in the firehouse. I, I, I'm not a pencil pusher. I'm not, I've never taken that role. I like to be in the fire company. I like the guys that I work with. Yeah. That's who my allegiance is to. That's my family. You know, it's my, my, my second family. In some ways it, I see them more than I see my real actual family. Absolutely. Cause you're there all the time. And that's who my allegiance is to, to them. Well, Cause that's, who's going to be there with me at three o'clock in the morning when things are, you know, getting real ugly and getting bad. That's who's going to be backing me up. That's who's going to have my, you know, to a fault. In a way, I'm glad to see that the young guys are kind of experiencing this just to see like, look, you know, don't get caught up in this hero stuff. Look how fast they turn on you. You were the heroes of, you know, we were the heroes of 9-11, which you ask anybody who's there, there was no heroes on 9-11. So there was just people who did what they could do. And uh, with this, heroes of the pandemic, you ask anyone in public service, you ask your husband, he'll tell you the same thing. Yeah. Doing your job doesn't make you. Like, it's, ni- it's nice when people say that. It's nice. But it also is fleeting. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that sentiment sometimes can be very fleeting from the public. Oh my gosh. So, you know, you rely on, on your brothers and sisters, you know, who work with you and, and the public, you know, you're, you're there for them ultimately. Of course. And you know, what's interesting, Nick, when this, this whole part of our discussion is so critical for anyone that's considering this career. And I can experience this as someone that grew up with you. And I can also experience this as the wife of a law enforcement officer. And obviously we weren't in touch during 9-11 but yet we were all around it. Right. I mean, I was living in Connecticut at the time and I feel like that could be a whole episode in and of itself that we could totally just unpack. But, you know, I think as a country, we needed that, right. We needed to hold on to our heroes. And what's fascinating to me is obviously you don't consider yourself a hero. My husband, you know, my husband doesn't consider himself a hero. As you were describing that the whole path that, you know, you just went through, I think of my husband, right? Sure. I mean, he, you know, was one of the lead investigators at Sandy Hook. And it was during that time that everyone in our country was just holding space for our police officers in Connecticut and across the country, right? Sure. Yeah, that was, a, you know, it, it a, was, a horrific chapter yeah, in our country's history. Horrible. And he had a front row seat to that. And it's, yeah, you know, it's tough. Absolutely. But let's rewind to last summer. And it's the same thing where it's like, all of a sudden they're under attack. Yeah, absolutely. Simply because of what they do. And the same thing for you guys. I know you went through similar experiences, simply responding to a fire. And it was just the thing that people don't realize if you're not in this career, one moment can change your life. Yeah. One One, bad moment. One bad moment. And and that's something that I think um, I'm thinking of you as a leader within your organization that you know, you have your role, but you're also protecting the younger generations that are coming up through the ranks. Uh, you know, like you say, the, in, in that leadership role, 
Yeah. I I lost a uh, one of the guys under my command. He wasn't under my direct command. But he's uh, one of my firefighters from my firehouse. I was working that that tour, and uh, he was in the truck company I was working in the engine. I was actually still a lieutenant in the engine company then, and you know he was a very very close friend of mine. Yeah. And outside of work, aside from one or two other guys, I, me and him spent the most time together. Yeah. He was actually somebody that I knew from the music scene from back in the in the early 90s. Yeah. Like we knew each other since we were about 19 years old. And uh, he died at a fire I was working. And as always, you know, this was a man, you know, he was a friend. He was yeah. a brother. But he was also someone I was responsible for bringing home that day. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's one of those things that you you deal with. Yeah. And you have to you have to process that and you have to try to make your peace with it and, you know, learn from it and try to just see what you're about and, you know, try to piece, piece everything back together. And, uh, you know, that's, those are some of the experiences like, you know, your, your husband was also in a, he was in a specialized unit. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a ticket writer. He was, you know, he was a guy who was on the front lines. He was, he's in those situations and, you know, you won't throw hero around at three o'clock in the morning when, when you're, when you're sitting there in a moment of sheer terror, Doubting your life decisions. That's one of the expressions that I use. I say, you know, there I was doubting my life decisions. Like, yeah. you know, wh- why am I here? What am I doing? Yeah. And, you know, am I going to walk out of this one? You, you sure don't feel like a hero. And then you really don't feel like a hero after no. when you come out of the other side of it. It's almost like, you know, somebody says that and it kind of kind of bristles you the wrong way. People mean well. Yeah. And, and, you know, they say it. But, you know, I'm sure when he was investigating, when he was investigating Sandy Hook, when he was doing, you know, some of his, his tactical missions, uh, you know, doing what he was doing before. Yeah. You know, you don't feel like a hero. That's for sure. You no. just. You know, just just doing it, getting it done, trying to bring everybody home safe, you know, trying to bring home my firemen safe, uh, make sure everybody goes home. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out that way, it's it's a lot to it's a lot to deal with. Absolutely. Well, so one last question I'm going to ask before we wrap up. What are you most proud of in your career? In my career? Wow, that's uh, that's a tough question in my career. uh, How about what are you most proud of in general? Well, in, in life, my family, you know, that I was able to build a life, build a family. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a beautiful daughter, I have a lovely wife who's uh, very tolerant. She's she's very good. Uh, <laughs> you know, my wife's actually uh, retired law enforcement. So she's from a law enforcement fire family. You know, she's understanding about a lot of things. Like I've never, I tell you what, I've never had a complaint working a holiday. Yeah. Getting ordered in. You know, she understands she did, you know, she worked every holiday too. Absolutely. We're so gonna have knows. a whole we're gonna have a whole episode on that one. Like that, that I think our listeners will be really happy to have you. Get her down we're here. gonna, we're <laughs> gonna get talk, her to sit gonna, down here. Yes. Oh my gosh, we need to have you know, she did that for 20 years and then she got out and uh, she was a sergeant yeah. on the NYPD when she she retired. Yeah. And uh she's always been very, you know, she like I, I said the it was an easy transition. She's from that type of family. Her father, yeah. you know, her father was uh retired. Lieutenant on the NYPD, yeah. and then her her uh, cousins are all firefighters. Her brother was uh, it. He's retired NYPD also. Yep. So she's from a fire police family. So okay. uh, you know she knows. Yeah. And she knows what it's like, and you know, and you know, but there was a lot of times too. I had something to do, and we had the baby, and there was times that I would have to take the baby to the precinct <laughs> when my daughter was young because my firehouse was. It, we have a precinct next door to my old firehouse, but she was the yeah. next precinct down. Yeah. So she wasn't far. But she wasn't right next door and I would have to drop her off and she'd put the kid in the car because we just didn't have the hour overlap. Yeah. You know, I'd have to drop her off and, and I go to the firehouse for 24. Oh, come on. That's amazing. Builds resilience but, uh, in the kids, right? Yeah. Well, my daughter will still complain about it. she's 16 oh. and she still complains about it. Oh, my God. As far as on the, on the job, I, you know, I'm, I'm part of an amazing company now. You know, the company I'm in now is uh, NG286 Ladder 135. I'm a lieutenant in 135. I was a lieutenant in NG286 for my first five years. 
yep. when I've been in the truck company. My experience is, is mainly truck work. So the majority of career, you know, my first 17 years, I was in truck companies. So that's kind of, uh, but you know, I was in a great engine and they, the guys in my engine showed me a lot. They taught me the engine side of it. Um, I have my senior men are amazing. It's a phenomenal company. The guys are great. It's, a, it's actually a lovely neighborhood. Yeah. The people in the neighborhood are very strong, very, we have a very strong community there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky where I landed. I'm very lucky in my, uh, in my life and, and in my career. It's amazing. Well, Nick, I am so happy that you came on to talk to me today. And and like I said, it, it kind of comes full circle, just knowing you since we were growing up. And I just, I look forward to having you come back on another time and we could talk about even more. We have a lot to unpack. You got <laughs> it. Oh my gosh. Well, um, I wouldn't bore anybody. <laughs> no, you know, and, and I think this is, it's important, you know, just starting to think about anyone that is considering a career as a first responder, whether it is working in the fire department or working in law enforcement, obviously that's, re- this is all really close to my heart. So it was an important conversation and I really, I thank you. I thank everyone for taking the time to listen and until next time. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much for listening to our episode today. Remember, if you spend too much time thinking about the final destination, you might actually miss experiencing the journey. I would be so grateful if you would share this episode with anyone that you think might enjoy listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast. If you leave a review, even better. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Unpacking Perspectives Podcast or email me at unpackingperspectivespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out my company website, NMD Careers, with any additional questions. Thanks again, everyone. Until then, have a great day.